Welcome back to the IPM on the Fly podcast, where invited guests share research-based information to help minimize reliance on broad-spectrum chemical inputs and encourage the use of IPM tactics around the home, garden, and farm. This series is brought to you from the University of Georgia Extension IPM program with funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Emily Cabrera. Here with me, of course, is co-host Michelle Hatcher, and we have invited Dr. Keith Delaplane to talk to us today about his recently published book, Crop Pollination by Bees, Evolution, Ecology, Conservation, and Management, Volume 1. Keith is an entomologist and professor here at the University of Georgia. He's a Walter B. Hill Fellow, and he's also the Honeybee Program Director here in Georgia. He's received the honor of Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. So you are quite the distinguished researcher and educator. Um, But I also must say that after reading a few of the chapters of this book, you're also an incredibly talented writer and artist because much of the graphics in this book were hand-drawn and watercolor painted. So I found this to be just a very beautifully written scientific publication, but it's also very visually striking. So Keith, welcome and um, tell us why did you write this book? Well, thanks for that introduction, Emily. I um, It is the second edition of a book by the same title that I published in 2000 with the same publishers. <clears throat> and at that time, there was you know, need for an updated book that was talking comprehensively about bee pollination. And it was a, a good seller. It's, it's gotten a lot of coverage and traction around the world for the last 20 years. But the publisher came to me and said, hey, you know, it has been 20 years. So do we want to refresh this book with the latest information? And I jumped on the chance and been working on it ever since. Um, it's expanded enough that one volume is no longer sufficient. Uh, it will have to be covered in two. And there is one problem when you publish a book with volume one printed on the title. It does rather commit you to producing a volume two. So the heat is on, if you say. I'm working hard on volume two now to make that promise happen. All right. So what is the difference? What will the difference be between the two volumes? Volume one lays out the theory and the principles and the natural history of pollinators and their crops. Volume two is going to be organized around each individual crop in alphabetic order and give the specific information and recommendations for those crops. And both volumes are bee-specific. They're bee-focused. Why bees in terms of pollination? Well, of course, bees aren't the only show in town. There are other flower visitors, and they all, to some degree, move pollen from one flower to another. And I do um, drill into that some in the early chapters of Volume 1. And I give credit to some of these other pollinators, like bats, for instance, and other types of insects, and even vertebrates are responsible for some pollination. Um, but there's no getting around it that the bees are the real heavy lifters. And I make a strong case that they are the most tightly co-evolved of any pollen mover uh, with plants. The others are a little more accidental in their natural history, whereas bees are uh, bees have never not co-evolved with flowering plants. 
they by definition became bees when they diverged from their ancient carnivorous habit as wasps and started exploiting the new protein that had showed up in the angiosperms and that that is functionally if not formally what defines a bee it is a wasp that has abandoned carnivory in preference to vegetable protein uh, pollen in the case of angiosperms okay if you're having a moment and only vaguely remember learning about angiosperms this will be a very simplified refresher but angiosperms are what we commonly refer to as flowering plants and they represent approximately 80% of all the known green plants on Earth. And what makes them different from gymnosperms, remember those plants that produce cones like pine, spruce, fir, is that angiosperms have ovules or eggs, which get fertilized by pollen and develop into a seed that is enclosed within an ovary and turns into a fruit of some kind. Angiosperms dominate Earth's surface and are the most important source of food for birds and mammals, including humans. So Keith is talking strictly about the angiosperms that require pollination, and more specifically, pollination by bees. And then from there on, the, the um, coevolution took off and gained its own momentum. The angiosperms benefited from the vectoring of their pollen and their you know, improve fertilization, and the bees uh, profited from the food and the nectar that those plants provided. So it's it's one of it's one of biology's most um, uh, most most typical uh, most iconic examples of coevolution. The partnership between flowering plants and bees is ancient and and, and mutually beneficial. So when you're writing the like this one, the updated edition, was there anything in particular that you found that had changed dramatically or had changed even not so dramatically from when you wrote the first book? I mean, something you discovered or something that hadn't been noticed before? Yes, the field of, poll- of crop pollination has matured and expanded dramatically since the year 2000. One of the biggest Um, sea changes has been a growing realization that there are more pollinators than just the managed honeybee. Most most people when they hear the word bee they typically think of the insects that live in white boxes and beekeepers who work them with their veils and their white coveralls and their smokers and the honey that these bees make and um, that, that is true they remain very important pollinators for the main reason that they're highly manageable. Uh, there is no other pollinator that is managed to such a scale as the honeybee. And so when um, 20th century agriculture started looking for uh, pollination as a deliberate input into crop production, the managed honeybee was the low-hanging fruit. It was the pollinator that was already in the domestic fold. And they sort of had a period of hegemony, I think, uh, where they dominated all the agricultural pollination. And it was not really until the later years of the 20th century that more and more evidence was surfacing that, hey, wait, you know, there's a whole community of other pollinators out there, uh, wild non-managed bees, not honeybees, but just so- some of them are solitary, some of them do live in colonies, but there's you know, hundreds of these species that are also visiting our crops. And with um, more research attention given to these, it was shown that these solitary bees are the real heavy lifters 
of agricultural pollination. And so this new addition, Michelle, uh, really foregrounds these changing under changing players in the field. The wild bees are given their due share in this in this addition. So does this also help bring to the forefront the importance of protecting not just the honeybee because it is in the news everywhere, but all the bees out there who you know could be be affected by environmental changes or anything that people are doing? Yeah, I think I can safely say, and this is mostly just from personal observation, I've worked here in this department for 32 years now, and I can notice a, a distinct shift in uh, the public's uh, understanding and perception and appreciation of bee pollinators. Uh, almost never do I receive a phone call nowadays where the person at the other end of the phone wants to know how to get rid of bees or how to spray them or how to kill them. And I think it's, it's, I think it's a good testimony to, um, well, the charisma of bees. They're an insect that it's nice to like. You know, they're associated with flowers and beauty and good things in life, so we're already predisposed to think favorably of them. But there's also been a real concerted effort in science educators to get the word out that our pollinators are valuable and our quality of life in developed economies like the Western, Western Europe and the United States, our quality of life depends on these pollinators in a very profound way. With you know the public perception changing, is that also happening on farms in in production? Are are farmers are you seeing including more habitat for pollinators? It's hard. It's hard, Emily, because uh, it it remains true that growers have to take care of insect pests that, for example, uh, feed on a crop during the time that the crop is blooming. And this immediately sets up a tension, and the grower is forced to make some hard decisions. Do I want to spray this herbivore that's feeding on my crop during bloom, or do I withhold spray in the interest of my pollinators? The research to answer these questions is, um, is, is fairly incomplete and really just getting started in a formal way. And we don't have a lot of answers yet for these growers who have this tense problem. But, but the funding is there. You know, USDA is aware of the importance of pollinators and these kinds of tensions and trying to support projects that address that. Ultimately, we wish to be able to show growers that, hey, if you use this option, you can expect you know, a certain profit per acre. But if you use this option and save your pollinators, you might get this profit margin per acre, but with the added benefit of sustaining your pollinators for posterity. And we will have to employ ag economists to make these long-range models to, to really make some uh, uh, good quality recommendations. Right now we're still kind of groping. Some of the best experiments out there have done, um, have done a remarkable job of answering this question. I'm aware of some that have taken acres out of production of the target crop. Uh, canola or oilseed canola is one example I'm thinking about in a study in Canada. They were able to subtract acres from production, convert those acres into pasture for wild pollinators, and with the same net area of acres on the farm make more profit than 
when they had 100% of their acres in production, which to me is, is, is staggering to think that we can do that, take acres out of production, convert it to pollinator habitat, and make more money. So we need to replicate those kind of experiments um, in regions all across this country uh, where there is a pollinator-dependent uh, crop grown. Not all crops are pollinator dependent. You're not going to see as much motive for this in the Corn Belt, for example. But for those areas that do have pollinator responsive crops, this is a crucial question, a crucial tension to resolve. It seems that there's this shift happening in the way we think about our inputs. You know, with the Green Revolution, it sort of it really shifted to being able to use herbicides and insecticides and fertilizers. And now we're starting to see this sort of shift back with more resistance issues happening with the chemical inputs, you know, needing more options in our toolbox. It sounds like there's also this shift to reintegrating pollination services and thinking about bees as, as an agronomic input. Certainly is. In much of the 20th century, there was a trend in agriculture to simplify the habitat, to plow a field, you know, strip away all plant life except for the one crop that is grown and make these extremely simplified monocultures. And then to turn around and reintroduce all of the necessities or caricatures of them, if you will. So instead of you know, rainfall, we introduced irrigation. Instead of, you know, natural herbivores, we introduced herbicides. Instead of natural insect predators, we introduced insecticides instead. And the, the, the problem with that approach, well, there's two things. Number one, it's extremely efficient and you get enormous yields. And this is the green revolution that you mentioned, Emily. Uh, another thing that is seductive about this is when you reintroduce these artificial forms of the natural thing, their effect size is huge, huge. And so it feeds the deception that we need this artificial environment to make realistic yields. To feed the world. Exactly, which is a self-perpetuating conundrum. And so what we are finding instead is that this is ultimately unsustainable and we are seeing more and more acreage around the world being gobbled up and brought into agricultural production um, because we are ignoring the natural assets that are already there and free. So there's now a big switch back to, hey, wait, why don't we, why don't we integrate the existing ecosystem rather than ignore the existing ecosystem? And pollinators are a part of that formula, and we're understanding that, hey, if we can somehow make our, our monocultures less monolithic, make them more edgy, I mean, think about that. Rather than one big square, one-mile field in one plant, what if it were hedgerowed? We, if we have a, a agricultural landscape that has more fence rows, more, um, more margins, uh, shorter distance from the edge of the field to the center of the field. These are arrangements of our plantations in modern agriculture that can be more friendly to pollinators and the insects that prey upon herbivores, you know, the, the parasite, pest, predator cycle that naturally keeps the bad guys in check. 
you need to make an environment that is friendly to these species and a big square one mile block of corn isn't it. Two, if you think about these, especially the solitary pollinators, the solitary bees, they tend to have really short foraging distances from their nest. They live in, most of them, tunnels in the ground. And on average, about 300 feet is the most you can expect them to fly from their nest. Well, that makes that center of that in one square mile field, you know, impossible for them to reach. So this is why we're advocating more edgy environments where the pollinators can get into the center of the field and get back to their nest. It's these kind of changes that I think are going to, it's, it's what mod, more future agriculture is going to look like. If we ever achieve a sustainable agriculture that is friendly to the natural habitat, it, using, recruiting the natural resources rather than ignoring them, it's these kind of changes that we will see. Isn't that talk about us as humans a little bit? that we have to get away from our arrogance of being more superior to nature, because apparently nature had it right. Well, By getting this right, I have to put it on a different level. Yeah. Nature had it right, we went in, messed it all up, and now we're trying to, we recognize now, oh wait, yeah. maybe that was, a, maybe that they had a good system going. Well, that, that certainly is a part of the maturation as a species, I think, is to recognize that we too are full participants and members and results of natural history. We're not some alien spectator from outside. We are in. We are in it. We are part of the story, and we have to cooperate. Have our manipulations been more harmful than helpful? Well, from the perspective of humans, they have certainly been helpful. I mean, there's a reason why we carpet the planet. You know, we as a species um, live everywhere comfortably except for the Antarctic. So we're doing something right for us, but that has come at a horrific cost to other species and other ecosystems. And I do privately worry that um, many signals happening in the world today are suggesting that we're reaching our carrying capacity of this planet, that we just can't keep on uh, exploiting it with no end in sight. There, it, the, the, the idea of limitless growth is a fiction that we need to some point start addressing. Hmm. Well, along that vein, I know there's a big business opportunity for commercial beekeepers to pack up their managed honeybees and travel around the U.S. to pollinate certain crops so that we continue to have particular products on the shelves that I guess we've grown to expect, right? Yes, you're speaking of uh, the migratory honeybee industry, which is, um, well, it's quite literally, it's the, it's the tail that wags the beekeeping industry dog. The annual California almond pollination event, which happens in uh, February, it's pretty early in the year, this is the single biggest agricultural pollination event on earth. There is nothing that approaches it. It is utterly breathtaking in its scale. It is the perfect storm of crop pollination for many reasons. Uh, number one, the almond crop really, really is dependent on cross-pollination. Not all crops are, or to greater or lesser degrees. Almond happens to be one of them that really is dependent on cross-pollination. Number two, the flower is morphologically very easy to, for a pollinator to visit. Uh, it's a very simple structure. The stigma that receives the pollen is out there and open and easy to contact, so it's easy to pollinate. Uh, number three, you want every nut you can get. 
which is not always so in other crops. For example, uh, apple. You, apple, you can sometimes have too much of a fruit set, and the growers have to go in and thin the fruit so that they only get the biggest, best apples. That's not the case with almond. With almond, you want every single nut you can get. And then finally, the confectioner's uh, industry and market has made almonds demand almost bottomless. And so there's a huge demand for the product. It's widely exported. California is the biggest producer of almonds in the world. And so all of this adds up to an inexhaustible demand for pollinators every February. And so every February, including Georgia, uh, beekeepers from every state ship bees into California, or at least in the contiguous states, uh, ship bees into California to try to meet this demand, and they still do not meet the demand. Gosh, it seems like it's just not a very sustainable crop, or maybe our demand, our expectation is just too great on this particular crop. Something seems a kilter when you have to ship in pollinators from Maine to pollinate a crop in California. So how stressful is this on the bees? Right. I mean, I'm thinking you're shipping these insects all over the country and then hoping to get them back, and they only have a certain lifespan anyway. That is a smoking gun that beekeepers and bee scientists have examined for at least a decade, and the results, surprisingly, are rather mixed. We have evidence that the migration uh, event is indeed stressful on bees, but yet we also have evidence that commercially managed honeybees survive better than beehives that are managed by backyard hobbyists. Well, you've got some, you got some confounding effects going on here. Number one, these are the best beekeepers out there. I mean, these guys know what they're doing. They do this for a living. Uh, they're really good at it. And if there's anybody who's going to know how to keep bees alive, it's going to be these guys. So you're talking about an extraordinarily strong set of skills in the commercial sector. But it's equally true that these bees do come back home from California almond with detectable problems. They do have higher virus levels, for example. They do frequently have higher levels of parasites. And yes, very often higher death rates. But that is masked by the skill of the commercial beekeeper. So it does not negate your question, it just elevates a whole lot more work for these guys to keep their bees healthy and to keep on performing at that pitch. And it must be economically beneficial for them to be making this decision, you know, do I stay in Georgia or Maine and and use my bees to pollinate crops here? I mean, there it must there must be some draw for them. It is a very acute problem, especially here in our state, Georgia. And one example bubbles to the top is the commercial blueberry industry in South Georgia, especially, that is in direct competition with California almond. Uh, nowhere. Oh, the timing. Yes. Yeah. Nowhere is this tension more apparent than in this example right here. So we have uh, South Georgia commercial beekeepers who are faced with the question: Should I? Should I go ship my bees out to California and make $250 a hive off of my rental fees? Or should I stay here in South Georgia where the rental fees are more in the neighborhood of $75? And they look at that and take a, take a look at the big picture and say, okay, shipping costs, you know, the condition of the hives when they come back. And some, some decide in favor of California, some don't. It's a difficult question. 
And so the blueberry growers, too, are on the flip side of that tension. They see many of their pollinators going out of the state and leaving right at the time that they need them. Um, South Georgia blueberry is a little different in that it is a natural native species, and this is something that's kind of interesting about blueberry, it is, it is one of the few important native species that has made it into mainstream agriculture. And that means it also has its own cohort of native solitary bee pollinators that are very effective pollinators, extremely good at it. And so you have this case here where the natural habitat is mitigating some of that loss that is, is represented by the honey beekeepers who put them on semis and ship them out to California. Meanwhile, back in South Georgia, there's this coterie of native uh, solitary bees that do a, pick up the slack and do and do pretty well. So it sounds like one size doesn't fit all. And in the case that you've just presented, if they can't resolve the issue of these guys taking their bees out west every year, well, then seems like a potential solution would be increase habitat around blueberries and and rely a little bit more on on what's already here. It, it is a perfect natural laboratory for us to test some of these ideas. And is it being tested? I'm happy to say that we in this department are pursuing competitive funding to try to do that very thing. Good for you. So stay poised on the edge of your seat. <laughs> so we're talking about pollination and pollinators. Describe to us what makes a good pollinator. Well, let's just be clear, I guess. We've not really defined pollination yet. Uh, pollination is one thing and one thing only. It is the transfer of the male reproductive cells from a flower to the female uh, receptive surface of a flower, either on that same plant or on a different plant. And that's it. Once that transfer happens, then the pollen grain germinates and it grows what's called a pollen tube down into the ovary of the receiving flower and it fertilizes the ovules in that flower which then subsequently cause the surrounding ovary tissue to swell and develop and that's what becomes the fruit. The most important movers of pollen in natural history have been wind, they have been gravity, they have been rainfall, but with the arrival of the true bees, you know, getting back to the evolution of the flowering plants and the bees, with the evolution of the true bees, we start seeing a, a group of insects that are specifically adapted for this and very effective at it because there's this codependence. So um, yes, that is pollination. Now it's equally true, and this is where it gets, uh, the plot thickens, it is equally true that angiosperms are not necessarily happy, if we can anthropomorphize here, the angiosperms are not necessarily happy that they are dependent on these pollinators. And so there has been a sort of, um, you can't call it an arms race, but a circular race going on here ever since where angiosperms are trying to evolve themselves independence from these pollen vectors. And this is why we have crops to this day who have various degrees of uh, dependence on pollinators. Some crops, an uh, excellent example is soybean, are totally self-fruitful. But let's kind of focus your question a little more on what makes a good pollinator. And let's just kind of limit ourselves to a crop that does need pollination. And a, a good example would be almonds. Another good example would be blueberries. 
we've been talking a lot about almonds and blueberries today, so we'll continue using them as examples. A good pollinator will be able to collect a lot of pollen on her body, and it's almost always a female bee that's doing this, as she visits one flower, and it's going to be on her face, it's going to be on her antennae, it's going to be on her thorax and her abdomen, it's going to be on her legs, it's messy. She looks like a, a, a flying ball of Velcro with all these pollen grains sticking to her. And she flies to the next flower, and that flower has evolved nectar to help woo her in. And so she comes in to get a drink of nectar, and as she does that, her body, which is covered with pollen, touches the stigma of the receiving flower, and voila, uh, pollination gets transferred. So a good pollinator will contact both sexual parts of the flower. It will contact the anthers, the male part of one flower, physically, and it will contact the, the stigma or female part of a subsequent flower in the same visit. So that pollen gets transferred. A good pollinator will also spread that pollen rather evenly across the stigmatic surface of the flower. Uh, a good example of the importance of spreading the pollen is um, strawberries. Uh, each strawberry flower is actually an amalgam or a compacted mass of many, 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 many florets, each one of which is its own little independent flower with male and female parts. They all have to be pollinated. And if they're not, you end up with a misshapen strawberry, which doesn't look as pretty. And if you're a consumer, you're less likely to buy it. So there's an economic uh, motive to have a pollinator that equitably visits all of those stigmatic surfaces to produce a nice, symmetrical strawberry. Another example of that is um, sunflower, you know, big sunflower head. Each one of those little florets in it is its own little entity, all of which want to be pollinated. So you don't get a full uh, head of sunflower seeds unless they're all visited. So a good pollinator will good, do a good job of moving the pollen from the male parts to the female parts and spreading that pollen around all available stigmas. So if I'm hearing you correctly, a good pollinator is like a voluptuously, well, colorfully dressed woman. Voluptuous is the key <laughs> word there, Michelle. If you're a voluptuous flower with copious nectar and pollen, you're much more likely to draw in the pollinators. For listeners that have backyard or maybe they're backyard beekeepers, what can they do in their yard to increase the success of managed and unmanaged bees? Most solitary bee species are soil nesters and they drill little vertical tunnels in the soil with little mounds of dirt or little tumuli we call them at the surface so they're easy to mistake for ant mounds mm. it is this time of year you know early spring late winter when these solitary bees become active and they emerge from their uh, quiescent pupal state in which they overwintered the adults emerge and they fly they mate and they will forage for pollen and nectar and come back and make their little cells of pollen and lay eggs on it in a new subterranean burrow and this activity can be quite frenzied 
it can be quite localized so that you have one area of your yard that may have hundreds and hundreds of these insects flying back and forth from their little holes in the soil. The best thing a grower can do is recognize that for what it is. It's a bed of natural native bees. Enjoy them. Don't spray them. Don't mow the grass. Don't walk across them. Leave them be and take a deep breath and realize that this frenzy of activity is at most only going to last for another week or two and then they will be gone for another 50 weeks. So an attitude of tolerance, an attitude of wonder can go a long way to helping the lot of these pollinators. So number one, be mindful of their nesting sites. And number two, it's important to have a succession of season-long blooming plants in your yard. This is not so important necessarily for the soil nesting bees, but it's very important for native bumblebees. Bumblebees sort of fit an interesting niche. They are social, but they're primitively social. And this means that they go through a solitary phase over winter and they only come out of hibernation in spring, the queen by herself, to start a solitary nest and start raising babies. And only once those babies have emerged for them, enough of them, you know, 10, 20, or 30, to stick around with their mother and help her keep the nest going, only at that point do we consider them social. And they, go, they will go through this social phase for the rest of the summer. Toward the end of summer, a bumblebee nest will start producing next year's queens. And they feed these cells of brood better. They give them more pollen. They give them more nectar. And they don't turn into worker bees. They turn into new queens and new males. So in the end of summer, the males and the new queens mate. And then eventually everyone starts to die. The old queen dies. The workers die. The males die. So that by fall, the only one who's left alive is the recently mated new queens, who then go into hibernation to start the cycle over again the next year. It is critical for that period in which the colonies are making next year's queens, which is usually mid to late summer, July, August, even September. It's critical for the colonies to have a lot of food during that time because that directly dictates the reproductive success and how many new queens that colony can produce to come back next year. So what a grower can, or a homeowner can do is make sure that there is a succession of blooming plants, not just early in spring, but middle of summer and late of summer so that these bumblebees can be uh, numerous the next year. I stumbled when I said the word growers, but it also applies to growers. Mm -hmm. Those growers who have local populations of native pollinators would do very well to make sure that there are ornamentals blooming on their farm in profusion in the latter half of summer so that their local bumblebee population will be back next spring. So we've been talking about all these bees and around here you're known as the bee guy, sort of, you know. The hip bee guy. The edgy bee guy. The edgy bee guy. Now we're going to have the edgy bee guy. So I mean, if you have to pick one to that you would really identify with or your favorite, which which bee would it be? It's hard to not love the bumblebees. There's something just lovable about them. I love their name, Bumblebee. <laughs> I mean, whoever came up with that just really nailed their personality. They're big. They're not elegant flyers. They're, they're so not. Lovely. Yeah, they're, they're not fast flyers. 
they just kind of bumble their way through a flower patch, big, clunky, awkward insects, but you got to love them. And they're also very colorful and they're very beautiful, and they're fairly easy to conserve through these methods that I was just talking about. Another one that's a real favorite of mine is the southeastern blueberry bee, which is a native wild pollinator of blueberries here in the southeast. These guys fly like rockets. They're the anti-bumblebee. I mean, these guys fly fast from flower to flower to flower because they're solitary and they have to make hay while the sun shines, if you will. They have to work really hard, visit lots of flowers so they can make as many brood cells with as many babies as they can before they die because they only live about one or two weeks. And um, we also see this in another common bee that your home gardeners will recognize and they're squash plants. We have another native solitary bee called the squash bee. How's that for a creative name? But the native squash bee is common across the entire eastern United States, and it is a superb pollinator of any kind of cucurbit, you know, watermelons, squash, um, cucumbers, and they're very excellent. They're superficially very similar to honeybees. In fact, they're very often mistaken for honeybees, but they are not honeybees. For one thing, honeybees typically do not spend the night in flowers, but squash bees can and do. Uh, honeybees are also much more slow and lethargic flower visitors in squash, but not the squash bees. A squash bee is another one of these rocket flyers. I mean, she zoom, 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 zoom between flowers because she too uh, feels you know, the impetus of time breathing on her, and she has to work really fast to get her brood in during her brief active period, too. So these guys really stand out. And yes, of course, the honeybee. Who cannot love the honeybee? It's manageable. It is the sort of the iconic bee that everyone compares the others to. Uh, it has the benefit of producing honey, which is its own agricultural product. And it has enormous recreation value, especially for urban livers. You know, to come home and have your beehive in your backyard can be really peaceful and therapeutic. So what about a bee, the bees? And all, you've studied this for 30, over 30 years. Has kept this passion about you, this, this drive to keep studying them. What do you like about them so much? Bees have enormous uh, ambit of of significance across human enterprise history and life and I I'm expressing my bias here for honeybees because that's what I mostly work in but the honeybee um, its biology as a social insect as a complex social insect it actually mirrors some of the evolutionary stages by which uh, cells come together to form multicellular organisms like you and me. That type of process is recapitulated when a bunch of individual bees come together to form one colony, and it is that one colony that is now the new Darwinian unit of selection. It's that colony that survives or fails. So at that very fundamental level, I find the honeybee a model for what the history of life on this planet has been across up and down evolutionary scales. And I find that breathtaking. As if that were not enough. This species is also our most important managed pollinator that delivers not only honey to us, which let's face it, it's a confection to most of us, but this managed pollinator that, that does a huge amount of the pollination of the crops that we enjoy in advanced economies. 
and very often those um, crops spell the difference between survival and pleasure when it comes to sitting down to eat. If you want to survive, you can get along quite well on rice. Okay, Rice doesn't require pollination, but hey, you can live. You can live off rice if you really have to. Now, if you want to have anything better than rice, we're talking uh, dairy products, if you want to have fruits, if you want to have meat products that are dependent upon forage plants, you're talking about pollinated crops. So the difference in diets between the developed and developing world, that difference is defined by crop pollination, pure and simple. That's a pretty big deal. Honeybees have also contributed to our mythology. Um, they have contributed to our iconography. The doorknobs on the state capitol building of Utah have honeybee skip on them because the Mormon founders of that state, you know, respected and honored and admired the honeybee for its industry. Uh, we have legends about bees and the importance of honey. Look how honey is scattered throughout our religious texts and our poetry. So it's hard to find one species of anything that has bridged so many areas of human concern and interest and health and well-being. It's not every insect that gives you that. So Crop Pollination by Bees, Volume 1. Volume 2 is in the works. Is there an expected date of publication. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've just eaten this one up, so we're waiting for the next yes, book. My, my interviewers are on the edge of their seat waiting <laughs> for that second volume to come out. I am hoping very much to have it out in this calendar year of 2022. And where can people find this book? You can find it on Amazon and science bookstores everywhere. Awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And if you are a real honeybee enthusiast, mark your calendars May 18th through 21st in Young Harris, Georgia, celebrating their 30th year of the Young Harris Beekeeping Institute. Um, it is a collaboration with Young Harris College and the University of Georgia, where educators and scientists around the world come and participate in lectures, workshops, training, certification of the Georgia Master Beekeeping Program, Welsh honey judging, and this year the newly added honeybee control and removal operator. It'll be held in person with a Friday night social and dinner, live music and awards. It is quite simply one of the best beekeeping educational events in North America. So check it out on the University of Georgia Honeybee Program website. And that concludes today's episode. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you on the fly real soon.